Welcome to Design Lessons, the podcast where we design our teaching days to be fulfilling for us and irresistible to our students. I'm Dr. Michelle Schmidt-Moore, and instructional design is my superpower. Each episode, we will take actionable steps to create great teaching days. We'll focus on mindset, real-world opportunities, and critical and creative thinking for us and our students. So, whether you're on your commute to school, walking your dog, or doing the dishes, let's start designing. Hey, designers. For this episode, we are joined by Angela Stockman, whose latest book, Creating Inclusive K-12 Writing Environments, extends that work that she's done for decades on using multimodal writing to help develop students' thinking processes, creativity, and storytelling. Now, Angela and I talk about how being intentional about sharing your legacy can impact your life and the lives of others. As you listen into the conversation, think about what might be your legacy and how are you sharing it with others? How do you approach writing and thinking with your students? Now let's talk to Angela. Well, welcome, Angela. I'm so glad that you are here. Um, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm Angela Stockman, and I'm delighted to be here as well this morning. Thanks for having me on, Michelle. I'm from Buffalo, New York. I started my career um, in the Catholic diocese, actually, here in Buffalo. I taught at the elementary level for a few years, and then I moved, I shifted um, south for just a few years and worked near the Pennsylvania border um, in a high school and middle school combined. It was a very small rural school district that was wonderful. Um, And then I moved home back to Buffalo when I got married and I spent the bulk of my career in Amherst Middle School. Um, In 2004, I was invited to come out of the classroom to become a regional staff developer. And that was really exciting work and incredibly rewarding. I met some amazing people who I still remain very close to and and friends with. And I also got to learn from some incredible people, too. I was working in a lot of school districts, though. And so in 2008, in a move that gave me the ability to stay in fewer school districts for a longer period of time, I became an independent consultant and I opened um, a writing studio for kids and teachers here in Buffalo that was dedicated to action research. And so a lot of the work that I do and the work that I share now is driven still by the action research that I do with teachers in school. Um, And I get to write with kids still and teach a little bit as well. I'm also an instructional designer at Damon College, um, which has been an education for the last year because most of my work has to do with helping instructors create quality online courses. Um, And so that has been baptism by fire. (laughs) <laughs> that, doesn't, that definitely sounds, well, it sounds perfect, right? So he has this wonderful blend of being able to work with kids directly, but also be able to kind of be reflective about your work. Um, and then also being able to share that work with other educators. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you opened up your own writing studio. Tell us more about how that came to be and what you, what you do there. I know that you opened it up again soon, right? Yeah. So uh, I was a Nancy Atwell girl from the start when I was in college. You and me and both. When I, 
<laughs> sure. Well, I graduated and I was going to become Nancy Atwell was really my plan. And that didn't work out so well. I think it was probably by 2 p.m. on my first day in the classroom when I realized that that was not really a solid vision, you know, but I think it speaks volumes um, about how, how passionate I was about teaching writing and writer's workshop. Um, and there's a bigger story there, but what happened was I went into my classroom and I really realized for over a decade how challenging teaching writing is and the challenges behind creating a high quality and functional and inspiring writing workshop that not only gets kids enthusiastic about writing, but helps them produce high quality writing too. That was such, and it remains such a tension and a healthy one um, yeah. in my professional life. When I became a staff developer, what I noticed, um, especially because this was the world before EduTwitter, mm-hmm. this was the world before teachers were connected online to their people. I would go into school districts and I would meet one or two teachers who were really fired up about teaching writing. And oftentimes they were very lonely and feeling Mm -hmm. isolated in that work. And I kept thinking that there needed to be a space where all of these people could come together and meet one another because I so wanted, I would talk with my friends all the time. If we could build our own school, I would put these two teachers from this district and this administrator from this district. Can you imagine how, and I wanted to create a space where we could have that energy at least a little bit. Mm. Um, I was also really troubled by the way that standards were being translated inside of schools and the writing experiences that kids were having that kind of locked them into desks where they were filling out graphic organizers and filling out packets and doing worksheets and doing a lot of academic writing. Or even when they were doing creative writing, it was for an academic audience. Um, very formulaic. Only, there wasn't yeah. a audience for them. So I, I wanted to create a space for them too. And at the time I had had the good fortune um, to meet Dr. Giselle Martin-Kinney, but she had founded a professional learning community called Communities for Learning. And we went mm-hmm. on retreat and the experience that I had there around community building mm-hmm. was just, it was so inspiring. And so I founded Studio in 2008 because I wanted to create a space where we didn't have to have all the answers mm-hmm. and where there were not necessarily bells or tests um, so that we could bring teachers and kids together sort of on a level playing field to investigate what is great writing mm-hmm. and what does it look like when we are nurturing writers to become great. And what happened in that environment right out of the gate, of course, I had parents who enrolled students who were, in their words, not mine, well, mine then, but not anymore, yeah. uh, resistant writers, mm-hmm. right? And um, and they really taught me, and I think because we had the space to do it, if they didn't want to write, I, I asked them what they would rather be doing. And they brought that stuff to studio. And what was astounding was they didn't need my provocation in order to take that stuff that they loved and in a thousand different ways that I could not even imagine transform that um, into multimodal compositions. And at the time I was doing an action research project 
and um, collecting all of this data, doing pedagogical documentation work. So there were tons of sticky notes and there were a billion photos and a lot of, of annotations and audio recordings. And I was coding all of that data. Yeah. And my husband, it was all over my living room. And my husband would say, it looks like a beautiful mind in here. If you know that scene in the yes. shed. Where the, yeah. So, um, and I love that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. He came you in the sticky notes on my wall. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> I'm looking at that going, oh, she is my people. Like, <laughs> the wall there. Anyway, um, my husband came into the living room as I was working and he had been out on the porch reading the paper. And it was the, the year of the very first Maker Faire. Mm. And there was an article in the New York Times about it. And they were talking about maker culture. And he walked in the door and he said, all of the stuff I see on your sticky notes, these codes you're creating, it's exactly what's in this article about these things called maker fairs. Yeah. And I started reading that and I was like, that's what's happening in my writing studio. These kids are turning it into a maker fair. And so that was sort of the beginning of a very long journey and um, studio has always been um, that I, I think will probably be my legacy. It's what I want to leave behind um, our communities like that, mm-hmm. uh, that are not based on necessarily making a massive profit. I never charged for studio until we had a storefront and I charged just enough to cover the rent. Yeah, um, Kids are always welcome because a, a lot of times you start charging and then the kids who want to be there are not able to get in the room. Um, and often if parents have to choose between baseball and writing studio or yeah. hockey, and I'm a hockey mom, so I know this pain, yeah. um, and a writing studio where they could get that kind of thing at school too, maybe, um, it's difficult to make that choice. So we try to keep the cost just low enough to cover overhead. Um, because honestly, I gain so much from that that makes my work that I do get paid for um, mm-hmm. better and it makes me a better teacher. And it's just, it's a wonderful place to be. So that is my heart. I love that you talk about your legacy, you know, this idea of what do I want to leave behind? What, what is the impact that you want to make on the world, but also sort of educationally? And I was curious about um, how that, like this mission that you have, or this internal compass that you have, how does that affect your work? How does that um, help you decide um, the projects you're going to take on, um, the experiences that you're going to develop? Mm. That's a complex question. I can say this. Where I come from in terms of vision and legacy, first of all, that was also Giselle martin Kniep who put that question in front of me for the very first time. And it was in that writing community and it was a breathtaking and sort of almost embarrassing moment for me when she asked that question. Cause I had never thought about that before. What I'd thought about was achieving, you know, getting high grades in college and having the gold cord at graduation and making sure I got a teaching job right out all of that stuff. And I wasn't young, young when I joined that learning community, but wow, that feels like it was, a lifetime ago um, yeah. in terms of how things have changed. So when she started asking that question and I really started thinking about what made me a writer, because that's really where it comes from is I know personally mm-hmm. the, the role that writing played in my life and what it did for me. 
that's what drives me. Mm. I didn't necessarily come from really great places as a kid. My family is very complicated. There was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of addiction. And there were a lot of Saturdays that I spent with my door closed in my bedroom writing. Yeah. And writing was sort of the only place where I had my privacy when I was a kid. It was the only thing that, that people who were not good to me mm-hmm. were not interested in invading, if that makes sense. Yeah. And my mother used to even tell me, never write anything down. You should never put anything down on paper. Somebody's going to find that, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And as I grew older, I ran away from home when I was in high school. And when I came back, a teacher who cared about me a lot reminded me that there were better ways to run away than the way that I tried. And that one of them was to go to college. And I had no business at that point going to college because I did not earn decent grades in high school, but this particular person believed in me Mm. and um, recommended me for honors English. And on her recommendation, I started to fly real straight and I did excellent work in that course. And I became an English teacher and writing remained a place where I could think and where I could have my feelings and most importantly, speak the truth about my experiences. And no one was going to sort of condemn me for that. Mm -hmm. Um, Writing also became something that that helped me move through a pretty significant postpartum depression. And I found a group of women who were bloggers at that time. Again, this was pre-teacher, you know, social media. Um, But there were women who were blogging about those experiences and not in a way that invited pity, but in a way that was sort of like, we are going to blog our way out of this. Mm. Um, And for all of those reasons, My legacy is driven by the fact that human beings that know how to write are human beings that know how to thrive Mm. and they know how to reason and they know how to make better choices. And most importantly, that is self-care for me in a thousand different ways. So I'm very much driven by this notion that, first of all, I struggle when anyone identifies another human being as reluctant, resistant, or broken, or low. These words really trouble me when I hear them. And I've used them myself in the past. We're socialized that way as young teachers. They have this sort of negativity to them instead of just like your teacher that kind of inspired you or said, look, I believe in you. I have I know that you can do this. When you talk about someone being resistance or, or even striving, it has, you want to come from a place of, of positivity. And right. Yeah. And not false positivity either. Like, I think the yeah. most important thing that my writing studio, early writing ex- studio experiences really taught me was to just be quiet and watch. And I had the space to do that. And what I realized was how incredibly arrogant we can be as teachers that, that I assume that I have some answer to fix some problem that I assume you have instead of, Oh, you needed to build that thing with Legos before you started jotting down the notes that would, would bridge you to print. Right. Or you needed to to talk that through a little bit more or mess around with it by doodling or sketching or drawing something or performing it. I will never forget 
um, when I, I called a parent conference when I was in the classroom teaching middle school with a, with a, a family uh, because I was concerned that their daughter was not producing writing in my class. Mm-hmm. And I remember how weird it was when I called home to make the appointment. Mom was very enthusiastic. Oh my goodness, we were going to call you too because I really do think we need to talk about her writing and we're gonna, going to come in. And I'm thinking, that was not the tone that I like expected her to have. Yeah. And when they showed up, she wanted to talk with me about her daughter's writing because her her daughter was writing volumes of fan fiction. Oh, wow. at home. At home. She but, was producing yeah. nothing for me in school whatsoever, mm-hmm. and that that was a lesson. That that was a moment. Um and so the, I I think the more humbled I can be mm-hmm. by the writers and teachers that I serve, the better they make me and then the more useful I am. I love what you're saying about that. So what does, how does um, multimodal composition, what does that look like in an elementary setting versus also what does that look like in a secondary setting? Um, You've talked about like teachers having a, a bit of humility, right? We were just talking about coming at teaching and coming at students, really looking at where are they now? Um, where do where we want where do we want them to go, but also where do they want to go? What mm-hmm. does multimodal composition look like at an elementary level, and then also what does it look like in a secondary level? It can often look much the same. For me, it's been less about distinguishing what it looks like at the elementary and secondary level, and more about discovering that a lot of the conversation around multimodal composition has been about products, Mm -hmm. what kids will produce as a result of the process that they move through. And oftentimes those products are intended for an audience. So multimodality can look like elementary writers creating puppet shows, right? And and, um, creating characters and a scene and a setting and acting that out um, and even creating the puppets that can can be a perfect example of what that looks like at the elementary level. A lot of green screen and stop motion stuff, and um, doing sort of a, you know digital work with with cartooning, um, all of those things. Multimodal composition can also look like that at the secondary level as well, where learners are creating. Um, interactive gifographics where they're used they're doing infographics but there are a lot of animated gifs inside of them that are instructional uh, or they might be creating um, a website uh, that showcases their artwork or they might be creating a musical performance or choreographing a dance mm-hmm. multimodal composition when we talk about it so often focuses on those products but what my what makes my work and my passion for it, I think a little bit different inside of the multimodal composition conversation is I came to this because kids were using modes other than print during the process in order to create high quality print at Mm. the end. So for me, a lot of my research began because I was still solidly of the mind that writing was the production of letters and words. That's where I was when Make Writing, you know, my first book was published in 2015. And what I was so enthusiastic about was what I was noticing about how the use of loose parts play and multimodality Mm -hmm. 
was actually leading to the production of higher quality and much more sophisticated print. At the same time, I was consulting in so many schools and doing a lot of coaching work using programs that really pushed kids to produce volumes of print very quickly and volume really mattered and getting that pencil or pen on paper or on getting them on a keyboard quickly was a big part of what it meant to teach writing. And I was noticing that if we could just delay that a little bit and linger in this place where kids are using materials and other modes of expression, they were sharing orally the most sophisticated ideas and vocabulary words. So then it became for me, okay, how do we sort of contain that and get it onto the page? Mm -hmm. And so that led to really uncommon instructional um, sort of moves. And so for me, when we talk about multimodality, it is about those products and there are entire you know, conversations that have been had about that forever. Um, I'm not the first one to say that writing is multimodal by a long shot. I am late to that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm really fascinated by is the relationship between multimodality and the influence and the affordances of those other modes and how they actually work to improve the print that kids can create too. That's been huge for me. Based on the process that you're describing, you know, we often talk about, you know, writing being thinking, and it sounds like engaging in more multimodal um, pieces up front, you know, using different, something other than print to describe what you are trying to convey through your thoughts, that that allows students anybody really, right? It doesn't, you don't have to be a kid to do this, but it allows people to work through that thought process. And then as a result of that thought process, they're, they come to the page more ready to, to put what they're saying down yeah. on, the, on the paper. When we talk about multimodality, what we know is that each of the modes of expression, whether I am building something and those materials have me working with space, right? Mm-hmm. or I'm expressing something orally, um, whether I am engaging in a performance and acting something out, the use of materials specifically is something that I, I'm always very interested in because each material has affordances that are different from others. So when I hold a pine cone in my hand, what, that, what happens in my brain is very different than when I hold a stone in my hand. There's texture, there's size, there's weight, and all of those things. If I say build me a character and I give kids materials, all of those materials, they sort of trigger ideas that I would not have had necessarily if I was using alphabetic text and print first. Mm. And so multimodality and its affordances. And then within that materials and the language of those materials, they really push us to think in symbol and metaphor and simile and to compose in incredibly nuanced ways. That's what I see happening. And a lot of that work that I do has been inspired by my visits to Reggio Emilia Um, where loose parts play is a norm inside of all of their classrooms. And it's how they teach 
and it's very much about aesthetic and beauty and metaphorical thinking and it's gorgeous um it sounds wonderful yeah so when you talk about your process i was thinking you we've talked about your legacy a little bit right and we've talked about what's important to you um and you're i've noticed that you're very good at sharing um, what you've been uncovering and what you've been discovering, whether it be in your studio or whether it be in your work, working with other teachers or working with students. Um, and so from a very practical standpoint of, you know, how does one go about doing that work? How do you go about sharing? You're sharing on social media. You share through the books that you've written. You share through the professional development that you offer. I guess, how do you go about doing all of those things? <laughs> And like the practical, the practical management of that? Yes. yes. Oh, all right. Um, so the why behind my sharing, I think, is is rooted in something really important. As I said a couple, you know, alluded to several times, I was working with teachers long before social was bringing them together. And I had the very good fortune um, of being able to be in community with some really powerful thought leaders when Twitter came online and Ning, you might remember Ning early on. It was pre-Facebook. Yes. Ning, I do remember that. Yeah. And so we just, I, I was sort of an early adopter there and I put myself in the company of people who were making it really clear that this was going to change everything and that we needed to be intentional about how we were going to use social media because there were going to be a lot of unintended consequences for how we showed up there. And you could see very quickly from that, that very early place, what it could turn into. Um, And it has turned into that to some degree. It depends on the circles that you travel in. We were really encouraged to embrace open source and to be willing to share And when I joined my learning community with Giselle Martin-Kniep and her colleagues at Communities for Learning, um, there were conversations about our responsibility to disseminate what we were learning and to share it back to the field. And that this is how you do good inside of the field of education. Mm -hmm. And as I did that from very early on, just being willing to give as much as I could away it put me in the company of other people who were passionate about the same things that I was or riddling with the same problems and our energy for this work and our curiosity about it grew. And that I honestly believe has prevented burnout for me when, when I am feeling really ground down, right. Um, and burned out, like all of us have this year, there is nothing like sharing something in my social network and having someone drop me an email and say, I use this in my classroom today and it just changed, you know, that changed a kid or it changed a situation or it made my day better or it moved kids as writers. You, yeah. you start to feel like, okay, well, maybe, maybe it is okay. And I, I do still have something to offer here. Um, yeah. And there is good. And I am doing good work, even though I'm doing really monotonous, mind numbing, awful stuff over here. <laughs> That is yeah. not the whole of who I am. And it keeps you anchored to your vision. Um, uh, can I stop you for important. one second? Because you're going to yeah. see some things coming out for me, literally about how the antidote to burnout 
is purpose. And, yes. and you literally just said that. And I'm right? just like, it, it kind of proves my point. And, and it's something that I've been noticing. I've, I've noticed it for myself, but but to hear you articulate it, you just like you just said that lights that lit, lights you up when someone talks yeah. about your work. I'm like, I literally have you know just been talking about the antidote to yep, is exactly right. yesterday. I'm in the middle of of recording lessons for this planning camp that I'm doing online, mm-hmm. and I in this planning camp was having this conversation about, um, you know, the importance of being anchored to your vision. And ensuring that you have standards that are aligned to your vision, measurable standards that will help you achieve your vision so that when there is a crisis or there is a new mandate or there is a policy change that does not sit well with you, you can still pursue your standards and you can still. So this year I wasn't able to be in schools with teachers at all, really. I wasn't Mm -hmm. able to write with kids. I wasn't able to facilitate professional learning um, the way that that I intended to, everything was different. But when I look back at my personal vision and the standards that align to it, mm-hmm. I still kept pursuing them. And I think that that was like planting seeds, you know, and, and, and being able to get to a place where after the worst of this is over, there's an abundant harvest. And so that that's the first thing is getting really clear about the difference you want to make in the field. Mm-hmm. And the difference that you want to make in the profession and the people that you want to influence and why. For me, I want to loudly communicate that there is a lot of work to be done to change what writing instruction looks like inside of our schools because we are silencing far too many children mm-hmm. and then assuming that they are reluctant or resistant writers when they are not. We are imposing a very narrow definition of what writing looks like. And the sad thing about that is it only looks like that in academia. Once you leave the world of school, nobody wants your dissertation. Nobody wants you to write that five paragraph essay other than the people who are in your niche. But if you want to have wide influence, you better know how to turn that thing into a GIF. You better know how to create an infographic or a podcast like you have, um, or to be able to create digital courses and font and, and design is such an important part of all of this. What has been shocking for me this year are friends who have really struggled to communicate the whole of their gorgeous thinking and work mm-hmm. because now they have to do it online. And they are not used to translating that document that they used to distribute into something that can be lifted and floated down a stream in a really light and gorgeous. And yesterday my daughter called because she's, she's a graphic designer and she's doing design work um, for, for some teachers right now. And she was like, this language and jargon, I have to reduce this to an icon. Um, and, and it was a fascinating experience to do that with, with my daughter who incidentally does not particularly enjoy producing alphabetic text or print, did not particularly enjoy those courses in college and is making a really decent living as a graphic designer in Brooklyn, New York right now, even though her, you know, passion for those other other modes of of expression is not there is not great that's not what she wants to do um she has taught me much about 
worrying over the kids who don't like to write. We need to stop worrying about them and start mm -hmm. watching them and yeah. listening to them and looking at what they can do. These are kids who are starting garage bands. They are kids who are playing video games and designing and yeah. hacking a video game. They're doing and amazing stories that go along in there. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And so for me, sharing began there with this notion that open source really matters, but it gets complicated when someone shares their expertise in the field, whether they're publishing a book or they gave a keynote or they created a course, how that work is translated inside of classrooms and schools. There's often a great deal of misalignment. I don't care who you are. That's what it is. You know, that's what happened. So that's another reason why it's important to keep sharing. Uh, because the more that you're sharing, the more you're shaping and reminding people of what the real purpose and intent was of the work. Um, and, and you need to be willing to have conversations with people where you say, that's not what I meant. Um, and this isn't necessarily the best translation of the work. But I don't think the answer is to stop sharing. Unless your work has done harm. Um, inside of schools. So and you yeah. talk about in your book, creative inclusive writing environments, you actually give very specific steps to how to, I'm going to say apologize, but if you were talking about how your intention doesn't always align with your impact, which is a little bit what you just spoke about right now. Um, and so I love that you had very specific steps for someone who felt, oh, it's right here. I went right to it. Um, you know, who felt as if their work might've not been understood in the way that they intended it. But then you have to think of the, you're thinking, you're saying, think of the other person and how they received it. So then how do you go about broaching that conversation? Yeah, I so, think it depends a lot on the context, Yeah, um, how you might approach the conversation, who you are in relationship with, what that relationship looks like. If I'm in relationship with a good friend, one of, you know, I will often begin by saying, you know, I'm your friend, right? right. Yes. I really want to share some thinking with you, you know, that might, that, that might um, make you uncomfortable, but I feel like I misstepped in this particular place. And what I notice so often is that when we try to make amends, the receiver is uncomfortable. And I think we need to be sensitive to that too. Like just because you're trying to apologize or make amends for something doesn't mean that's a gift that you're giving someone else. That's an uncomfortable moment. That's another burden that you're asking someone to carry, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's important to be very specific about, I feel like I might have misstepped here. Please know that wasn't my intention. Um, this is what my intention was, but this is, I can see that this is what the actual effect of that decision was. And this is what I'm going to do to try to repair that damage um, and, and to develop that self-awareness. The thing is, is if you're going to share anything in a big way or make your thinking or learning or work or opinions public, you are going to hurt someone at some point. And I think the willingness to practice humility and to just to carry the burden yourself of making amends. That's very tricky getting that right. I don't, I'm not sure that I have um, at all. But, and I think it's um, circumstantial too, right? Like yeah. Said, like the context is really important. The context is very important. Exactly. Right. So if you were to make, we're kind of in that segment where we make recommendations and, um, you know, we really focus on mindset, relationships, 
thinking, critical and creative, as well as really giving students real world opportunities. And we talk about these things really, not only for students, but we also talk about them for ourselves. Um, and so if you were to think about educators who embody either one or, or more of those um, sort of characteristics or pillars, who would they be? My earliest and greatest mentors were Dr. Giselle Martin-Kanik, who I've mentioned several times, Diane Cunningham, and Joanne Picone-Zokia. These three women founded Communities for Learning, Leading Lasting Change, um, and they are the consultants behind Learner-Centered Initiatives. Um, and Giselle retired last year. All of these women are still consulting in some capacity, but they were the first who really made a concerted effort, I feel, in, in my corner of the field to create the capacity for authentic learning and to really get um, very specific about what that looks like and what it means to teach and assess and design curriculum and create opportunities and offer feedback and most mm -hmm. importantly, create communities where that kind of, of thinking and learning and work is happening. And, and, you know, so often we pay attention to the voices that are loudest on social media inside of the field. You know, who, who is getting the most attention is typically the people who are loudest in these spaces. There are so many incredible educators who are doing incredibly consequential work in the field. Yeah. And they are not on social media. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting to me is I'm on social media much more this year for a lot of different reasons. But a big chunk of it is because I'm able to be on social media more this year because I am not on an airplane as much as I was yeah. in the past um, and scrambling to design the level of programs that I was designing. And so sometimes I think we're deluded into believing that what happens on social is what's happening in the field, but they were the first that I would, that, that, you know, I, I'm consistently. Um, and I think that impressed you, can, you can have that impact, right? You're talking about how there's so many educators who are doing good work who aren't necessarily on social media. Right. And I think that each of us as an educator can have that impact and it doesn't have, like you said, it doesn't have to be absolutely on social media. So going back to what you were saying before about if you have a vision, if you have this idea of what your standards are in relation to your legacy, one, that's going to make, I think, your your educational life more, even more fulfilling um, because, because you have, it's not all of what you're doing, right? Your day-to-day -day is not all of what you're doing and you're moving toward that. But how many people you influence, it might be the people in your building, it might be the people in your district, it might be people across the world, but that impact is really up to you. Yeah, I have the privilege of working with lots of different teachers in lots of different places. And I have a pretty solid digital footprint and a thriving professional learning community um, online. I will tell you that where I feel most impactful is in my little writing studio here in Buffalo, New York. Where I feel most impactful are with the young writers that I'm in relationship with, that I get to teach and most importantly, learn from. Um, and so I, I think that there's a lot of noise um, that reverberates out of social media. And I also believe that I, you know, I know that I have incredibly crucial relationships with people that I've never met face to face. And we do incredibly good work. 
um, online. And I love having a wider network to pull on and share with. And, and if you want to be influential and if what you really want to do is impact how writing is taught inside of schools, you need to leverage that. Mm -hmm. Um, but when it comes to my personal satisfaction with my work and knowing that I am, or I'm not making a difference, it's those more intimate and closer learning circles that, that do that, that offer me that opportunity, I think. No, that makes sense. Your book is very well researched, right? There's a reference on every chapter. You can tell that you either in person or through another person's writing has kind of made connections. What are some books or podcasts that you would really recommend for us to really delve into? So I, there are probably two places um, where I'm being very thoughtful right now. One is in, in the realm of anti-racist education and specifically in the realm of literacy. And so Felicia Rose Chavez's book, The Anti-Racist Writing Workshop, um, is, is one that is dog-eared and that I keep returning to and kind of um, assessing, like self-assessing around. That's been a very important read. Beside the work of Julie Stern and Trevor Alio, um, Kayla Duncan and Krista Ferraro, who wrote Learning That Transfers. This is a brand new book. Their work is not new in the field, though. Um, if I were to recommend one book this year, it would be that one. And their podcast, Conceptually Speaking, is illuminating. And in, it, it's it's just so chewy. And... Um, substantial and also light enough to be delighted by at, at different times too. So it's not this thick cerebral soup that you're kind of wading through. Um, it's the sort of podcast you can definitely listen to while you walk in the morning. Um, but what you walk away with is really significant and, and understanding how to teach for transfer uh, and conceptual um, understandings has been transformational for me. So those are the, those are the places where I'm living right now. I love that. So you have this summer, you have a, a, several opportunities for educators. Can you tell us a little mm. bit about those? Yes. Um, every summer before COVID, I used to run something called planning camp. Um, I've done it every single summer in some way, shape or form. I've invited teachers to come together at no or low cost to try and implement and begin to, to actually practically apply all of the pretty ideas that they see online. Usually it's at my library at the end of my street. I can walk there. Um, old school, not a lot of technology. And we just get together in a very bare bones room and, and have some good learning. I can't do that. Um, I couldn't do it last year. I yeah. don't think that I can bring people together that way this year either. So I've put planning camp online. And I've kept the price as low as possible. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm inviting teachers to plan a year, a unit, or a day and to ground it in their vision and their legacy and those standards we've talked mm -hmm. about. I've created three different ways to do that through a podcast where they can kind of listen to the learning as mm -hmm. they're doing the work or doing other things. 
there is a multimodal workbook that supports it with all of my plans and planning tools and approaches. Um, and then I'm going to have weekly open office hours where people can drop in any time to get feedback on how they're applying the learning. I also have my rake writing studio. My summer studio sessions are at Damon College this summer. So kids will be writing with me there um, for a week this summer and then throughout the school year next year. And I always invite around three teachers to each session. Um, and we do lesson study and we do pedagogical documentation work. And I try to give teachers an experience that they can take back and replicate inside of their own classrooms, not just with writers, but professional learning experiences as well. And I have a bunch of digital courses that are online and a book study starting June 1st with Routledge um, around creating inclusive writing environments um, in the K-12 classroom. So that's kind of where I am right now. Lovely. How can people get in touch with you? What's the best way to connect with you? They can find me on Twitter. Um, my handle is my name, Angela Stockman, uh, or in the Building Better Writers group on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram, um, and my handle there is Angela slash make writing. Well, underscore make writing. It was such a joy talking with Angela Stockman about her work. I've been such a fan about how she shares so generously with educators and how she articulates her vision for students and for herself. And speaking of vision, I'd love for more people to be able to hear the stories like Angela's. So if you like the podcast, share it today with one, at least one other person that you know. And also take a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, designers. This is a More Creative Learning production hosted by Michelle Schmidt-Moore and edited by Christian Schmidt. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. We will see you on the next episode.